1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What the heck does a Frisbee have to do with a bullet? Well, you might be surprised. We've got a discussion of Frisbees on this episode of Franz Spomer Outdoors Podcast, along with good information on holsters for handguns with lights, and something about nodes in barrels for accuracy. If you've ever wondered about nodes, stay tuned. Coming up. Hello, everyone. Hey, once again, we've got lots of questions, answers, corrections from our listeners, and we always appreciate all of it. And one of them is from a patron, Stuart, who asked me or told me about his frisbee experiences relating those to our discussions on bullet spins and spin deflection and oh boy all sorts of things so let's just see what uh stewart had to say i don't know if you've ever disc golfed but there are all kinds of discs available each with the same diameter but their own weight materials and aerodynamic profiles now doesn't that sound like a bullet Mm mm-hmm Some are classified as understable and others as overstable. For a right-handed thrower, a backhand thrust results in the disc spinning clockwise. Sure. In this scenario, at high speed, an understable disc drifts to the right after release, and then it drifts to the left when it begins to slow down. Hmm. A stable disc goes straight before drifting left when it slows down, and an overstable disc immediately drifts left after release. Wow. However, you can also see that stronger throwers tend to correlate with an overall correction to the right at high speed. Does this sound like bullets from high-velocity rifles? I personally cannot spin discs fast enough to get much of a right drift. The understable situation, spinning extra fast, is difficult to do I think it's much like bullets where it sounds like it only happens in extreme circumstances. Okay, I don't know if this disc applies, but it seems like there's something there. Well, thanks for that, Stuart. Um, I never considered the aeronaut dynamics of Frisbee, so I really couldn't comment much uh, to Stuart other than kind of makes sense. What do you guys think? I mean, we are talking roughly the same thing. Obviously, you've got a little aerodynamic lift underneath that Frisbee disc that you probably don't get on a bullet. There are different shapes, but a lot of it has to do with this basic physics. So any engineers and physics experts out there who might be able to elaborate on that and see if they can't correlate these things, it would be fun to learn this. going to be a a bit of a brain stretch for us, but I don't have the answers, but it seems like it's pretty much playing in the same ballpark here. All right. Good one, Stuart. Thanks for giving us something to think on. What else do we have here? This is from someone, user SZ. Ron, I watch your PCasts, meaning podcasts, routinely. You're usually quite accurate in your replies. However, sometimes you're not quite thorough enough. (laughs) Nobody's surprised there. A one-grain difference in powder can make a big difference in pressures and velocities. I know where he's going at here. Please explain this to the reader when the cartridge has only, say, uh, a 12-grain capacity because small-capacity calibers, or cartridges he means, are much more sensitive to even a half-grain of powder difference. Boy, he's on it. I think you know what I mean. I understand this clearly. I shoot a large number of rounds yearly. Some are wildcat or improved cartridges like The Hornady, the 17 Hornady Hornet Center Fire. That's a good example. Big difference in velocity with only one grain of powder difference. And it makes a huge difference what powder you use too, whether it's a fast burning powder or a slow burning powder. Okay. These are great points here, user. And you're absolutely right. What we should have been talking about was percentage of volume, but the The particular reader had a problem. He had a load built up that shot beautifully. I think it was three quarter inch groups or so, a little less than that even. But it was a little bit hot, he thought. So he wanted to slow it down just a smidgen and take one grain of powder out of it. And when he did that, his accuracy went to heck. It was twice inaccurate from what it had been. And he wanted to know if that one grain of powder could have made that difference. I don't think I was saying that taking one grain out is always something you can do or add one grain and you're going to improve. Not when you've got a tiny case like user here says. So good point. Any hand loader probably knows this or will learn it fairly quickly because they will give you these recipes in the hand-loading manuals. When you're loading for a really tiny little case, you're going like one-tenth of a grain at a time. And I quite frequently load to one-tenth. I try to weigh on my scales so that I'm within a tenth, either way of the exact spot where I want to land. And I take a special care with those tiny cases rather than a, a 30-06 or a 375-H or something really voluminous like that. Good point. Now here's one from Jonathan, who was on the same topic. Jonathan says, yes, one grain does make or break accuracy. What you are doing when reloading for accuracy is trying to get the bullet to leave the muzzle at the peak or valley of a barrel oscillation when the muzzle is relatively motionless. Been doing this method for decades for competitive shooting and hunting. And what you're talking about here, leaving the muzzle at the peak or valley of oscillation, I think is... A lot of folks are a little confused about this. I was for a long time, and heck, I still might be a little bit, but it has to do with, with nodes. You'll often hear about getting the perfect node for accuracy in your barrel. And what that has been explained to me as the length of your barrel and the pressure of your cartridge going down the barrel makes that barrel vibrate or, or oscillate, move a lot. It's hard to believe that a heavy steel barrel like that can do it, but they enlarge in diameter slightly and they kind of wobble like a spaghetti noodle or something. So what happens is your bullet is moving down there. You've got these oscillations of the barrel going up and down like in a wave pattern. And wherever that wave crosses the midline of the barrel when it's not moving, when it's stable, that suggests that your barrel is not moving. It's always in that same position, pointing straight ahead, I guess you could say. If the bullet emerges from the muzzle at that point, the barrel is not moving to throw it up or down. That would be a node at which you would have maximum accuracy. So that node could be at several places in the barrel. You know, maybe it's every six inches or five and a half inches or eight inches? I don't know. But if you cut your barrel off at that specific node so that your bullet leaves each time, wow, there's your accuracy, but most of us aren't going to be cutting our barrel off to find our nodes of accuracy. So that's why we do what Jonathan's doing here, and we adjust things out so that the bullet leaves with the pressure that's behind it and all the vibrations that it makes. You select your powders and your bullets and your seating depths and all these things to make it leave at that node. You're actually modifying the node, the point in the barrel where this Stability happens, I think, with your powders and pressures and the bullet seating depth and all the rest. I hope that made some sense to you guys. If not, dig into it a little bit more and we' are right back and ask, and we can elaborate but that's basically it now. This is Travis, and he's also talking about this one grain of powder. Let's see what he has to say. I have one more suggestion for reloading questions about the effect of one grain of powder on reloading and accuracy. Another thing to consider is if he wants to stick with the lower charges of his hand loads, it would be to tune the seating depth. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Tune the seating depth. Excellent idea, Travis. There are some great videos on this method. My method is actually to find a load with workable accuracy, but consistent velocity. From there, I tune the depth of my bullets by pushing them in or out in tiny little increments. One of these or a couple will usually group well, but I recommend doing research before trying this because this is a pretty simple explanation of it, but it all works great. Thanks for the great contact, Ron. Oh, thank you, Travis, for bringing up seating depth. Yeah, and it's basically all it amounts to is that you push your bullet in a little bit further into the case or out a little bit further. You don't want to it- touching the lands generally, because that raises the pressures. And you also risk the bullet being in the lands far enough to get grabbed by them. And then you pull the case out and the bullet stays in the bore and all your powder dumps into your action and stuff. But hand loaders figure all that stuff out. That's pretty common stuff. Good tips, guys. Thanks for sending those in. eye Ron. Well, this has got to be from Australia. It's got a eye, And I love it. I'm hoping you can help me. Well, I will sure try. This is Harrison. I'm from Australia. I guess that. And as such, our gun laws are rather over the top. I have heard that too, and sorry about that. I am on the lookout for a new rifle, but it must be one of the following actions. A bolt action, a lever action, a pull action. I assume that's the slide action or the pump action. Um, a lever release action. That's probably, say, like a Ruger Number no. 1 or a Park Arms Model 10. Uh, the falling block action. Or it could be a single-action revolver in a rifle format. Ooh, that's different. Any of these actions are very easy to come across, as you know. However, I'm looking for one that is chambered in either 22 long rifle or 22 win mag, and that can be easily swapped between the two different cartridges. Oh, boy. Are you able to provide any possible answers to this issue? I don't want to have to pull a gun apart and swap calibers. There needs to be a gun that can be easily swapped in a matter of minutes with little or no tools or equipment. Does such a rifle exist? I don't think it does. I know, I, I remember seeing some 22 revolver rifles. The, Colt made these back in the 18, middle of the 1800s. When Sam Colt invented this revolver, it didn't take long before they modified it to be a rifle. You just have to put a, a buttstock on it and a longer barrel, but you still have your revolver and Makes sense to try to get it with a 22 long rifle and Win Mag, similar to Ruger's Single Six handgun. Their revolver will shoot either one, because they're changing the cylinder, the chamber. That's the advantage of a revolver. And I can't think of any. You can't do this with the same cylinder because the 22 Win Mag won't fit in a long rifle cylinder, and the long rifle cartridge will fit in the 22 Mag cylinder, but too loosely and there goes the case. Splits when you shoot it. Accuracy probably isn't all that great either. It's just not a safe thing to do. So you need to come up with a rifle form of Ruger's single six, and I can't think of one. I thought Uberti might be somebody that would have that kind of thing. I know they've had some crazy things like revolver rifles, but they're usually in a, like a 45 Colt or a forty four Mag or something. Um, what else would there be? Ah, uh, I know there is one, I think it's the Heritage, They call it, Heritage 22, but it's just a long rifle, I've never seen it in a Win Mag. Hey, anyone out there who knows of a revolver rifle with interchangeable cylinders between 22 long rifle and Win Mag, that's the information Harrison needs to know. So let me know, and I will cough it up in a uh, future podcast here. But boy, I don't know, Harrison. You might have to have a gunsmith make this for you. Get yourself like a single six, a handgun from Ruger. You probably can't have handguns, and you know. Oh my gosh, yeah. I I feel sorry for you guys over there. This the onerous regulations that you're up against. We fight that stuff over here all the time. There's always somebody thinking they're going to cure all the world's ills by outlawing some form of a firearm. Okay, let's see. Let's go to somebody else here who doesn't have as big of a problem. Timothy says, hey, Ron, I've watched hundreds of your videos and enjoyed and learned from them. Thank you, sir. You've mentioned going on safari several times. I'm interested. How do you get started with safari hunting? How do you get permission, transporting firearms, finding an outfitter? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's that's a big, uh, big question. The answer, though, is really fairly simple. You just ask your outfitter your PH. If you find some guy advertising hunts in Africa, contact him and he will provide you with all the information on how to do everything. An alternative is to go to a travel agency here that specializes in traveling for hunters, people carrying firearms. We've used Gracie Travel a lot and Travel with Guns. Uh, both of those know how to do it and they know which of the better airports to go through with the least amount of hassle which forms you need to fill out ahead of time for the rifles, how many uh, cartridges you can take over, and all that information. And then you go to your county health people or your doctor and say, I'm going to XYZ country. Do I need any special shots for diseases and stuff? Generally, any more about all we need are prophylactics for malaria in places that are pretty wet. Um, But gosh, it's pretty simple. We go over there a lot. We were just over there last month. We were there last year, and we always have a great time. You are going to love it. There's so much wildlife over there, so much hunting and different species, and the prices are really quite reasonable. So more power to you. I hope you make it over there and soon. Now, here are a whole bunch of answers for this guy who was wondering about how he can find a holster to handle his 10 millimeter auto-loading handgun when he has a light on it he is hunting feral pigs at night trying to eradicate them with a rifle but sometimes things get a little crazy and these hogs start running at him in the dark so he put this light on his backup handgun just in case he had had some close action but he couldn't figure out a holster that was going to fit and work so we threw it out there and thanks to everyone we got lots of recommendations i'll just go through a few of them but basically Pretty much anyone who makes a holster can make you one, or they already have them in the line. And people like, here's Eric saying a Viridian F- X5L light laser with a Glock 2010 millimeter is awesome. Viridian sells OTW holsters that automatically turn the light on when you draw. <laughs> That's kind of cool. All right. Um, Riddleza says Streamlight TLR number one and a Kydex holster from a reputable manufacturer. He's partial to a tier one concealed holster. Uh, Despair Bear says alien gear holsters have some good options for uh, handguns with lights. Adam says Safari Land makes all sorts of holsters are great quality. I have a few for pistols with lights and some without. And Dimu says I have a TLR1. I think that's a second mention of that one. And Clever or Cleveland. Cleveland Holsters makes a Kydex holster for it. Uh, Robert says, there are hundreds of holster manufacturers for Glocks and others with lights. So finding them is easy. And another guy says, hundreds of them are out there. And this guy says, GS holster. So obviously, there are plenty of holsters that will accommodate your lights. But what I found to be interesting while I was researching all this stuff, a bulletin came in from Sig Sauer, kind of a warning bulletin. Sig Sauer is reminding consumers about the risks associated with the use of light-bearing holsters. That's a a bit of a syntax grammar problem there. It's not a light-bearing holster. It's a light-bearing pistol fitting inside of the holster. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Got to get it uh, accurate. Um, They have been involved in a number of alleged unintentional discharge incidents. Ooh, This is worth paying attention to. Due to the large openings in these holster designs around the trigger, which is necessary for accommodating the bezels of attached weapon lights, fingers and foreign objects may be able to enter these holsters and contact the trigger. This vulnerability may be exacerbated by the use of a light-bearing holster without a compatible weapon light attached. Hmm, yeah. Okay, that's the warning. So apparently you've got to be concerned about these designs and make sure that you can't you don't open them up so much that the trigger is exposed. Yeah, worth knowing. All right. Thanks for that one, Sig. Here are the team's surprise questions for Grandpa Ron. <laughs> Let's see what they've come up with this time. Looks like their computer shut down for one thing. Oh, there it is. All right. Ooh, we go right away to New Zealand. Vincent. Ron, a quick question. How reliable are Remington 700s? I heard their bolt handles are falling off. Yeah, this Model 700 thing has gotten blown all out of proportion. Model 700s were first released in 1962, and they became pretty much the best-selling bull-action rifle in the 20th century. I think ultimately the Model 70 Winchester outsold them, but not by a heck of a lot. And in the last, we'll say, 1970s through the 90s, a 700 was kind of the go-to for accuracy. And a lot of gunsmiths, most of them, in fact, when they wanted to build a, a super accurate rifle, they would start with the Remington 700 action. It just lent itself to easy accuracy. Now, they got a little bit sloppy with their tolerances in the later years. They were going through different CEOs, and the company would go this direction, and then they'd next year go a different direction, and it just got out of hand. So that's when the tolerance started to slip. It's probably the machining was getting a little bit old as well, and that never helps, but they just kind of lost their way. So that's when these problems started to pop up. And as more and more of them did, of course, we all talked about it and said, man, what happened to Remington? They used to be the most accurate out of the box rifle out there. And now look at all these problems we're having. And yes, some people said that they went lifted the bolt and it just broke off or Came in out the back or something goofy. That should have never happened kind of a thing. And then on and on it went. We sort of piled on. And that sort of thing happens. You know, somebody gets a bit of a reputation and then people pile on and suddenly no one will touch it. I don't, I don't want to tell you other than that. If you find a good used rifle, my goodness, there are so many sub MOA Model 700s out there from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s into the 2000s. And then at some point they started going a little bit sour. So look around, test them and everything. You should be fine. Now they are making them again. And I spoke with the manager of the room, the the building um, of the guns. And he said, as along with the president of the company, they said, our number one goal is to improve the tolerances and the quality. Quality is job one. So they seem to have made a commitment to cranking the quality back up to what it was back in its heyday. And they made several improvements to the metallurgy and the, and the design and everything else. So I think it's are worth taking a look at again. All right, good question there, Vincent. Adam from Wisconsin. Greetings, Ron. I love your videos and articles, and I would like your opinion. If you have time, I certainly do, Adam. I currently own two rifles, Ruger M77 Mark II stainless laminate 300 wind mag and a Steyr Pro Hunter Mountain Rifle 270 Winchester, but only with plastic stock the Woodstock broke. I don't like plastic guns. <laughs> I'd rather have a, a short action and Woodstock rifle. I'm partial to Mauser control drawn feed like the Ruger or Winchester Model 70 and a 20 inch barrel. It's a nice size for me in the trees and the blinds where I mostly do my deer hunting. Any suggestions? Um, yeah, a couple of them. One, you could get a replacement Woodstock for that Saco or a Steyr. It was a Steyr Pro Hunter. I would think Steyr would sell you one if you contacted them. But if not, there are aftermarket stock sellers. I always mention Boyd's because I grew up with the in the same area as the the guy who started it. He and his wife, and they've got good products now. Mostly they're laminated wood stocks, but they also sell ordinary call them ordinary, but you know American walnut wood stocks. They they make a lot of wood stocks as well as the laminated ones. So you might try there. And then there are other manufacturers of stocks. But if you absolutely want a new rifle, controlled round feed, I'm thinking Kimber. They've got controlled round feeds and a really light trim action. I really like that. And uh, of course, Model 70 Winchesters are out there. Still making a great rifle, the, the Rifleman's rifle. Now uh, Ruger is still doing the Hawkeye even though most of their sales and emphasis now seems to be on that American rifle with a completely different action. But they still have some of the uh, Hawkeyes. Um, No, that one, CZ used to make the 550, which was a Mauser style. They're not doing that anymore. Of course, you can go right to Mauser if you got a whole bunch of money. They make some beautiful Mauser 98s over there. Um, So yeah, you've got some options here. That's what I would recommend. I hope you find a good one, Adam. Should, oh, I thought of one more, Park West Arms. Gosh, I'd been high on them lately since I started using their rifles. This is the old Dakota Arms from South Dakota. And they were around starting in the late 70s, into the 80s and 90s. And man, they were doing great. And then Remington bought them out, or the parent company. And they kind of fell by the wayside with when all that stuff went belly up. But some investors bought them up, and they're cranking them out again. But they couldn't use the Dakota name. So they had to come up with another one in a hurry and they came up with Park West Arms, which to me was like, what the heck is Park West? And they were thinking the highest valuable real estate in New York City or in the world is on Park West Avenue. So that signified the best. And that's what they're trying to do, make the best. So they're making a Mauser Model 70 hybrid. That's a sweet, sweet rifle. Fairly pricey again, but that's a good controlled drawn feet action. Charles from California, my old rebarreled small ring Mauser 1 in 10 twist 257 Roberts won't stabilize Barnes' 115 grain copper bullets. But some reloaders indicate that their 1 in 10 barrels will stabilize up to 130 grain bullet. Could it be the number of lands or grooves in their barrels? No. <laughs> Or could it be that they are shooting more dense, short lead core bullets that stabilize better? Yes, the second one, you got it there, Charles. Or are they just shooting 257 Roberts plus P loads at faster speeds and that's the difference? Or is it all of the above? Now I wish I'd bought a faster twist barrel for my trusty old copper bullet shooting California deer hunting rifle. Yeah, I I agree. You should have gone with a one in nine or one in eight probably. See that, but you're on it. It's the length of those copper bullets. 115 grain barns is a long, long copper bullet because copper isn't as dense as lead. So that's, yeah, you're exactly right. But no, it's not the twist rate. Yeah, um, uh, the plus P, uh, plus P load, by the way, guys, is just a, a little bit higher pressure load to be used in modern rifles. They offer it in a few, like the 257 Roberts which was pretty slow with its uh, original pressure standing in the in the chamber. So you can shoot those a little bit faster, but it's not gonna make that much difference. It's the twist rate. So that's it. I would just find yourself a lighter bullet. I don't have any problem with the lighter Barnes bullets in 25 because they retain so much of their weight. And when they hit uh, your game, they are gonna perform beautifully, even though they seem like they're a little bit too light in weight. Not a problem, really. I'd give it a try. I use it all the time, so go, go to your ninety-five grain or maybe hundred grain. I'm not sure what they have, but you just get slow enough or short enough bullet in copper, it should stabilize. All right, Brandon from Louisiana, Ron. I was trying to see what your input is on the thirty-five fifty-five. Is it a good round to shoot for whitetail? I'm looking for getting a lever action to add to my collection. It gives you the option of a thirty-eight fifty-five or a thirty thirty or forty-five seventy. Do you think? it's a good round to shoot. Well, Brandon, the 3855 is a good round to shoot, but I don't think it's a good round for which to find ammunition. This is an old black powder round. It's been around since the mid 1880s. Um, It used to be called a 3855 Ballard too. And this was another one of those Marlin Winchester deals where Winchester comes out with it, calls it the 3855 Winchester center fire. Marlin wants to chamber it in their rifles. They don't want to put Winchester on it. So they changed the name to Ballard because the actual cartridge sort of sprang from an older cartridge called the, I think it was a 38 by 50 Ballard, which was used in single shot rifles for competitions and stuff. But it's a straight walled case. And it was actually the first cartridge chambered in Winchester's new 1894 lever action. The famous 3030 lever action was first chambered in the 3855. It wasn't until the next year that they chambered it in 3030 and for the first time used smokeless powder. And then later they chambered the 3855 for smokeless powder. But originally it was all black powder. So it was an old black powder load. And then even later, now we're going back to the mid to late 70s, Winchester made it into the 375 Winchester for their lever action. Big bore rifles. They beefed up their Model 94 and they were allowed then to use more pressure. So the original 3855, I think its chamber pressure max is around 35,000 psi. But when they made it into the 375, they bumped that up to 55,000. So you get a lot more speed out of it. So the problem with the 3555 is finding ammo, it's just not that common anymore. I think you'd be better served for deer hunting anyway with a 3030. Lots of ammo from everybody, everybody loads that one. Now, the 4570 is excellent, some people just love it, but there's a lot more recoil. You're shooting a much heavier bullet, and not everybody likes the recoil of the 4570. You're going to find more loads and ammunition for the 3030, you're going to find the rifle. Lighter and easier to carry. Everything's going to be a little less expensive. You've got a lot more options in 3030, and it is such a proven deer taker. In, well, I would imagine, in Louisiana, you're going to be hunting in some pretty heavy cover. So you should do well with that one. That's how I would look at it. If you like to play around with something obscure, 3855, man, the people who have it absolutely love it. But, you know, it's just hard to come by the ammunition. So there are your choices. Good luck with it, Brandon. Here is Garrett from Michigan. I bought a out 6 and I'm working on a good round to reload for it. To keep it short, in your experience, should I focus on high-weight retention bullets like solid copper bonded, or should I focus on medium retention like the Spire Points or the Hornady's SST? I'm leaning toward 150 grain for flatter trajectory and lighter recoil. Be hunting primarily Michigan whitetails. Yeah, good question, In your You're facing the same issue that so many of us do, especially with a versatile cartridge like the 30-odd-6. Do you shoot the 150 grain bullet or the 180 or the 200? Do you do the deep penetration bullets? I would say for whitetail in a place like Michigan, where you're probably hunting in some fairly close range stuff, you're not looking to fly halfway around the world and keep that bullet online, you don't need the long high BC bullets to do the job. You will get a flatter trajectory, as you say, out of the 150s. Now, what happens when that bullet lands? Well, uh, the SSTs, the more malleable bullets that are somewhat frangible and or they really mushroom a lot, that suggests that they're going to have more shock value, do more damage on the animal than the controlled round expansion bullets, which do expand, but then retain most of their weight and they punch on through. Generally those will require a little more tracking and the animals tend to run a little bit farther before they run out of gas because you've probably not torn quite as much tissue, Uh, especially if your bullet breaks up on the lighter bullets. They break up and you've got pieces flying all over. You can do a lot of damage and really increase the hemorrhaging. That said, I have shot some deer with a thirty out 6 and 150 grain bullet like the SST. It wasn't exactly that one, but one of those typical cup and core style frangible, relatively frangible lead core bullets that mushroomed beautifully after we found it in the deer later but we couldn't find the deer. I mean, it took off running like we'd missed and I knew I'd hit him, I could hear the whop. And we looked and we looked and we looked, there was no blood trail because the bullet went in, it didn't come out, it's a little bit high in the chest and it takes a while for that blood to pool up and come out. And so you've got issues there. So I generally like a bullet that goes through and I've got a better chance for a blood trail. But either one of them work and with a out 6 and a white-tailed deer in Michigan, you should get him, just be prepared to track. Too many of us think if you get a bigger hammer, we're gonna kill everything right now, right there, and walk over and pick it up. If you're a hunter, you've got to know how to track as well. Every animal does this, I mean, even lions and wolves, you know, they they go after their game and they don't automatically get them every time when they get their claws into them. They escape and they have to go after them again, or they wound them and they have to stay after them. We obviously try to make a clean kill, but, Heart shot, lung shot, perfect shot placement doesn't always mean it falls dead right there. So be prepared to track and don't give up too easily. Keep looking. Many times I've shot pretty confidently that I hit that deer, go out there, no sign of a hit, no blood anywhere. And I look and I look and I look and I find the deer a hundred yards away before I find any blood in the trail. And then all of a sudden lots of it and there's the deer. So be prepared to be a hunter. Good question, though, Garrett. Good luck, too. Blake in Texas. Howdy, Ron. I'm a college student planning on an Audad hunt. Oh, Audad in the Davis Mountains of West Texas with my dad. You guys are going to have a blast out there. I've done that several times. Great country. A lot of history. Beautiful. And that Audad is really quite an animal. Those are uh, not really a sheep, kind of a sheep goat, they say, hybrid thing. Uh, really ancient, and it comes out of the Atlas Mountains in North Africa, of all places. Very few of them left there because they pretty much overgrazed and decimated that country. But there are a lot of them in Texas. Believe it or not, Texas is the salvation of a lot of old world animals that have kind of lost all their habitat in the original place. At any rate, you're going hunting there, and you're going to have a good time. Now, what do you want to know Here is uh what style of footwear would you suggest for a hot weather Spot and stock in the canyons and briars. Ah, I typically hunt whitetails in lightweight synthetic boots. I don't think you want those for this thing. If you uh, also if you could suggest a good factory bullet for the 270 Winchester or seven rim mag or any other tips, I really value your input. Okay, Blake, I want to get you into some really stout mountain boots. Um, I've used Loa mountain boots over the years and had great luck with them, and the other one is, um no uh, Kenotrek, I'm using those right now. Kenetrek Mountain Hunter boots, I find to be just what you need on this. It is not everywhere that you hunt out at over there is as rocky as where I've been hunting in the last couple times I went. But it was thorns and cacti and loose rocks breaking, and there was enough grass over them that you couldn't always see the rock until you stepped on it and it twist tried to twist your ankle. I like to have a good eight inch leather coming up the side of that boot, a good stiff sole. So check out the, uh, the Canada Trek Hunters or any other boots like that. And I think that's what you're going to want. Yeah, they're a little bit heavier, but you need that ankle support and you need to protect the bottom of your feet from sharp rocks and stuff and stay on those, you know, just stay up. You don't want to fall in some of that stuff. It's pretty steep. I mean, it was pretty hairy the last time we did it. So that's what I recommend there. Now for your 270, i oh, to have a reputation for taking a hit. And I can remember shooting one once with a 270 WSM shortly after those came out. And it was like I didn't even hit him. But I know I had a smack right behind his shoulder where it belonged, kind of a deal. But he, instead of falling over after five seconds or so, like they often do or usually do, he starts walking up the hill with the rest of the crowd. I thought, well, I better give him another one. So I did, and I aimed for the spine on that one, a high shoulder shot, hit that, and down he went. So what had happened on that first shot was the bullet was one of those early coppers. Um, actually, had some lead in the shank and it opened up minimally and zipped right through him and didn't tear a lot of tissue. They improved that bullet later. It's kind of a prototype at the time. So you don't want something too hard, but I do like punching on through. Now, since then, they've really perfected the Barnes X bullet line, the TTSX, as well as uh, cutting edge bullets, uh, Badlands Precision. These are all copper bullets that open up. And my favorite in the last, Couple of years is the hammer bullet, shock hammer. So those have been working beautifully. But you can also go with your lead cores. Um, I don't know that I would go with your traditional cup and core bullet. Go for something that's a little more of a controlled expansion. Wide open country out there, you shoot through one, and it takes him a little bit longer to to die. From I think you're going to be better off with two holes in him, so you've got some good blood trailing. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I recommend now. A 130 grain bullet is plenty, heavy enough. You don't have to go to the 150s. 140 is a great compromise in the 270. Guys are always arguing, should I go with the 130 or the 150? Go with the 140 and you split the difference. Get it in a nice boat tail with a long secant ogive or yeah, get your BCs up there on that 140 and you've got the best of both worlds. That 270 is really a pretty impressive cartridge when you look at it. Then, in the 7 Ram mag, pretty much the same thing. I'd go with 150 grain bullet there. You could do a 140 The right bullet. Really doesn't matter with the, either one of those. If you want a little more playing with the wind here, go to the 160, 162 grain bullets in the 7. You don't need them for the oomph or anything, but it does make it a little easier on a windy day to keep that bullet where it belongs. So that's what I recommend, Blake, and I sure hope you and your dad have a great time out there. It's beautiful country, but it's, it's rugged. It's tough stuff. It's the real West. That looks like the end of our questions today. Hey, I want to thank all of you guys for writing in with not just your questions, but your corrections and your additional information and your Frisbees. (laughs) It was fun. Keep them coming. Hey, if I got anything wrong on this one, send that information in again, and we'll put it out there on our next podcast. I guess that covered it. Until next time, I do hope we all hunt honest and shoot straight.